one of the first problems we find in the early church is a failure to properly distribute uh, the bread and the food to the different classes of widows, Jewish and Greek. And the apostles uh, confronted this problem and dealt with it by delegating the responsibility of distribution to godly, spirit-filled men who we believe became our first set of deacons. Well, further instruction and organization was needed in the early church, and we see some of this going on in this chapter. As Paul is giving guidance to Timothy on how to distinguish between true needs and those which are not as legitimate, as well as we find some evidence here of some type of order of service, order of widows in which uh, they were enrolled for, the, for serving and building up the body. The Apostle James has this to say, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's put our religion into practice by taking into consideration these valuable words from the beloved apostle. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives." Give the people these instructions, too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion upon the weak and the needy. We thank you that you commissioned your church to be an outpost of mercy and care and comfort. We pray 
that you would give, it, uh, give us insight into these early instructions for your church on how we might minister effectively for the care and the building up of the body of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the dust cloud swirled in the famished wind, the young widow looked up from her work to see the wild-eyed prophet approaching near her. What does he want now? She thought to herself as she continued preparing the meager meal for herself and her little boy. She had resigned to the fact that the meal would be her last. Finally, her deceased husband's kin would get what their devouring eyes desired. They couldn't help but stare as they fantasized that for the day that they were able to grasp the pitiful property that would become theirs. They can have it, she muttered to herself. I just don't care. The famine had been great. Despair was knocking at death's door, begging for relief. And yet the esteemed visitor had come calling. Perhaps God had heard her desperate prayers for help. While honoring the customs of hospitality, the young widow fetched water for her visitor. But then to add insult to injury, the man asked her for a piece of bread as well. Rather than resent the request, the widow of Zarephath explained that her meager rations of flour and oil were almost up. In resisting the self-pity welling up within her, she declared her intent simply that she was to make a final meal for her and her son and die. But then the prophet spoke. He rebuked despair and offered hope in its place. Do not be afraid, said Elijah. The Lord God of Israel says that the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain upon the land. The woman's heart swelled with joy unknown for many months. She wept, hugged her son, and whispered, The Lord is the God who hears us and has not abandoned us in our distress. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, The Lord is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God indeed provides for his household. However, the means for providing for his family are the members of the body of Christ. Widows in the ancient world, like today, were the most vulnerable in society. And the church has a specific responsibility to care for them and to equip them for works of good service. In our fallen flesh, we oftentimes lack the compassion and the discipline needed to properly care for the weak. But to combat our tendency to neglect those in need, we need Jesus to help us care for our own households and God's. But before we jump into the subject of widows, I want us to consider briefly verses 1 and 2. In these early verses, Paul establishes a principle of respect to govern the relationships in the family of God. He cautions Timothy not to rebuke an older man. 
Now, he is not telling pastors that they should shy away from confrontation or to overlook wrongs committed by older men. Rather, he is guiding the young pastor, Timothy, to address such wrongs with gentleness, with respect. A young man learned that his father, a professing believer, had committed an act that required reproof. He didn't know what to do, but he sought the counsel of his pastor. And so the young man resolved to write his father a letter, but then to set up a time to meet with him personally. And using the letter as a guide, he very carefully and humbly offered a proper correction to his father. Thankfully, his father received the young man's words without anger or resentment. And he was restored. And their relationship was preserved. Proper care is needed in God's house to do things with sensitivity. We need to give one another the benefit of the doubt. We need to treat one another tenderly. Older women as mothers in the faith. Young men need to be encouraged, not to be bullied by obnoxious older brothers in the faith, rather to have an example to follow. And likewise, young women need the care and the protection of sisters and daughters in the faith. Men especially must guard their eyes and their hearts that they may approach their sisters in Christ with absolute purity. And such attitudes and behaviors brings health and growth to the church of God and pleases our Heavenly Father. On verses 3 through 8, Paul establishes his case for the care of widows and provides us guidelines to determine whether or not the needs are legitimate. Now, verses 3 and 16 encapsulate the entire passage, helping us to see the need to prioritize our assistance to widows who are truly in need. Once again, widows were very vulnerable, subject to poverty and abuse. They lacked, in that day, the social mobility and the educational opportunities that are available to women in our day and age. And they could be pitiful creatures, no doubt. But because God cares for the weak and the needy, we must be called upon to do the same. When the opening verse, verse 3, Paul exhorts us to give honor to widows. Now, this term means more than just verbal respect. It actually implies material support. And we see the word used again later on in verse 17 as applied to teaching elders, what we call today pastors and preachers. And so... Paul is is telling us that there are some widows who are worthy of financial support, both to preserve their dignity and as a kind of repayment as the church body ministers to the weak, just as God has shed his riches upon us. Now, Paul adds a qualifier here, telling us we need to distinguish between the truly needy. He categorizes those widows who have their family to lean upon for their support. And this is a reminder, biblically, that the family is the first line of support for the care of individuals. Not the state, and not the church. 
And Paul gives two reasons for this uh, priority on the family. First, it's the way that children and grandchildren can repay their parents for the investment and the care that they received in their upbringing. And secondly, such actions are pleasing in the sight of God, who cares for us. And just as God carried Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, so God instructed Israel to care for the orphan and the widow and the stranger, the alien, in their company. Well, going on to verse 8, Paul admonishes with a, with a firm warning at the, to those who would fail to care for their own households, rebuking them as those who have denied the faith and whose behavior is worse than that of an unbeliever. So what are the implications of this teaching for us today? Well, one, I would say that the care for the aged is not primarily the state's responsibility. Our modern welfare system, in many ways, is an unfortunate and mismanaged effort to compensate for an entitlement culture that has forgotten its God-given responsibility to take care of one another within the family. And while the, the church is an expression of God's mercy to assist families where sin has ravaged their households, the first line of support is the family. And so one of the primary goals of the church is to build up families, to operate the way God intended. Now, of course, wise parents prepare for their elderly years, preparing themselves for the twilight of their life when their bodies begin to suffer, when their earning capacities are diminished and their health care costs can skyrocket. Life insurance is a good thing. Savings and investments for retirement years are wise. These are not ways of testing God. Rather, these are the very means, the appropriate means that God provides to take care of us in, our, in the twilight of life, to spare our families and the church and the state from the burden of caring for us. Paul even explicitly says this in verse 16, encouraging women of means to, who have widows in their families to take care of them so as not to burden the church, freeing up the church to focus their energies on those who truly were in need. Now, regarding the widows who are truly in need without family support, Paul distinguishes between the godly and the wicked. He paints the picture of the ideal widow who has no family, but rather than despair, she puts her hope in God, crying out to him day and night in prayer, asking for his help. We might think of Anna, the octogenarian woman in the temple, who had the privilege of greeting the infant Christ coming in for his circumcision. We may think of Luke 21, where Jesus commends the offering of the widow, mere pennies, the giving up all that she had to the praise and the glory of God. Such devotion and trust should be the goal of every widow. But then Paul gives us the other extreme in verse 6 of the widow who lives for self-indulgence. He says she is dead 
even while she lives. Rather than trust in God, she indulges in her selfish pleasures, in entertainment, in wasteful expenditures of her time and her money that are remaining in her short life. In my brief experience in ministry, I've found that most widows fall somewhere in between these two extremes. Even the godliest of widows have issues of sin. And even the most wretched of folks still have some remorse over their sins, have regrets, and they do want reform in their broken lives. So how do we know who to help? Well, for starters, I would say that widows are not just older women whose husbands have died. Women whose husbands have failed them, betrayed them, and left the family in destitution are also included. Nor are widows necessarily women. There are men who also need financial assistance and pastoral care to meet them in their loneliness. So I believe the question comes down to one of priority. In practice, here at Westminster, we focus on our first line of help is to our members and to our regular attenders. Our deaconesses do an outstanding job of visiting our homebound women, many of whom are widows. Our home groups also do a wonderful job of caring for recently widowed members and others in our congregation who are suffering and going through difficulty. And this church has a long and generous history of giving to our benevolence fund, enabling this church to care for and provide for families during very difficult times. But when it comes to outsiders seeking help from our church, and there are not a few, we commonly direct them to our food pantry. It is not our practice to give out money to strangers because we don't have a relationship with them. There is no way that we can confirm their story and hold them to account for the use of those funds. And I guess that the collective experience of all the pastors on staff have heard just about every story imaginable of need, whether real or imagined. But on those few occasions that we have offered funds to the outsiders, we had to be very selective and to pay creditors directly. And we tell the beneficiaries that if he or she comes to request again, then we will have to probe deeper with more personal questions that we might identify any unhealthy patterns, immorality, irresponsibility that may be undermining their efforts for reform and to rectify their crisis situation. The needs are great in a world of brokenness and sin. But nevertheless, while we need boundaries and we need standards, we must be moved by compassion towards those in need and not withdraw from them. In verse 7, Paul charges Timothy to command these things to the church, that the church not be guilty of culpable neglect. Woe to the church that fails to care for her own when she has means to do so. Now in verses 9 through 15, Paul switches gears to focus a bit differently upon these widows. Now I believe that 
we're still talking about widows who are in need of support. But I don't believe the criteria that he is listing is the criteria of who's going to get support. Rather, along with many commentators, I believe that this list of criteria is for widows who are going to serve in a kind of order, some sort of recognized responsibility of service in the church. And uh, there, there's historical uh, evidence for this in the early church there. In the second century, we saw an order of widows caring for orphans and the sick and visiting those in prison and so forth. So we may be seeing some early form of that even here at Ephesus in the first century. Now, according to the, the verses we have here in front of us, it appears that these women had taken some sort of vow of, uh, of strict devotion to the service of the church, uh, that these were women who were past their childbearing years. They were not looking to remarry. And uh, this kind of type of role or position was an honor that the young widows aspired to. And here's where Paul comes in with his counsel to provide a corrective to what he sees as a conflict of interest. As he notices how young women who have lost their husbands in their prime and have become widows are seeking consolation by their commitment and service in the church, and yet they feel the natural urge for a husband and to raise children. And we find that urge battling with their pledge of commitment to the church. Now, there are differing interpretations on this. There are some who take negatively Paul's language of sensual desire in verse 11, and in verse 12, referring to these women bringing judgment upon themselves by breaking their pledge. Uh, There are some commentators who would charge these women for apostasy, that, that even accusing them of attaching themselves to unbelieving husbands uh, out of their desire to relieve their widowed status. But uh, along with other commentators, I, I would contend that Paul is not condemning these women. Uh, rather, he, he is simply being practical. And he is recognizing God's good order in that young women, very naturally, are going to yearn for children for the affection of a loving husband, and to be a mother. And so he counsels, in verse 14, for these young women to remarry, to have children, to manage their households, and to give no opportunity to the evil one for slander. Now, but there were those, in verse 15, who did apostatize, who did follow after false teachers, And perhaps these are the weak-willed women referred to in 2 Timothy 3.6 who fell prey to wolves in sheep's clothing. But nevertheless, Paul wants to establish standards for these widows who would be added to this list. In a way, it's almost like the list you have for the elders and the deacons. But here it's applied to the women. He says that they should be no less than 60 years of age. And the age 60 is significant in the ancient world. This oftentimes was the age of full adult maturity. And in the case of a woman, would practically put her beyond any hope of remarriage. Uh, But notice that like the elders and the deacons, these women had to have a reputation of having been faithful in their marriages, a good reputation of caring for children, whether their own or orphans. They need to be women of hospitality, 
which was vital in that day and age where inns were scarce, dangerous, and plagued with immorality. And so these widows likely would be caring for visiting preachers coming to minister to the church. And then lastly, these women were to have a humble servant's heart in the likeness of our Lord Jesus, not too proud to perform the menial tasks of foot washing. In uh, The Hiding Place, popular book by Corey Ten Boom, we hear the story of the Ten Boom family who were involved in the underground effort to hide the Jews from the Nazis in occupied Holland during World War II. A, a heroic story of tremendous courage. And unfortunately, the family was betrayed and caught, imprisoned, and uh, Corey and her sister find herself uh, imprisoned even uh, behind German lines in, in the nation of Germany. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me about the story is how Corey describes her older sister, Betsy, and ascribes to her a kind of Jesus-like compassion that's very uncommon. Her compassion towards needy, fellow, needy women, fellow prisoners, as well as her graciousness towards the guards that brutally abused them. In fact, Betsy's godliness and her love for Jesus, love of Jesus, was so imminent, she was able to transform the whole character of their barracks, transforming a group of infighting, bickering, angry, frustrated women into a loving community of service and care for one another. And then on another occasion, Corey and Betsy find themselves in a new prison situation. And Betsy leads Corey in a prayer of thanksgiving. And Betsy even thanks God for the fleas in their beds. And it's not till much later that the two sisters discover in God's providence the reason for these irritating pests. The fleas kept the guards away freeing up the two sisters to lead the women in Bible study, using their forbidden copies of the scriptures to lead many, many women to faith in Christ. These two old maids, good for nothing in the sight of the Nazis, led a remarkable ministry in the most wretched of circumstances. Betsy's legacy would outlive her, as Corey was set free from prison just days after her older sister's death. Corey returned home to Holland, and she began to tell her story. And she carried her sister's vision of establishing a ministry of healing to those who had been traumatized by the war and the Nazi reign of terror. But what was most remarkable about that ministry is that it cared not just for the victims, but also the perpetrators, even Dutch traitors who were scorned by their fellow Dutchmen, found refuge in these homes of healing. And even the Germans, even Nazi collaborators, called upon Corey to come and to provide the healing 
balm of forgiveness in God's grace. Just as Corey's sister left her an example to follow and a vision to fulfill, our Lord Jesus modeled for us how to care for the weak. He has given us a charge of ministry, of provision, protection, and nurture to those who have been ravaged by the effects of sin in a fallen world. The footsteps of the large crowd cannot drown out the dirge of flute players and the wailings of mourners. The pallbearers carried the young man, the only son of his widowed mother, with stoic resolve. The women led the parade out in front, according to the Jewish custom, believing that it was the woman's fault that sin and misery had entered into God's good creation. And there, way out in the lead, walked the widowed mother herself, desolate and alone, without hope, pitied by all, abandoned by God. Poverty would surely seize her like a bandit. Her tears blinded her from seeing the approaching unexpected visitor who stopped the crowd without a word. Don't cry, he said, with a depth of compassion she had never witnessed before in any man. And then most surprising, the holy man of God approached the coffin and did the unthinkable by touching it a rabbi defiling himself with a dead body. But the horror of the crowd was dispelled when he spoke with unparalleled authority. Young man, I say to you, get up. And with great tenderness, the healer brought the living, restored man to his his widowed mother. Jesus cares for widows. He calls you and I to do the same. But we must remember that we, at one time, were just like that man in need of resuscitation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It was the Lord's intervention that gave us new life. And you and I were like that widow without God and without hope in the world. But by the death In the resurrection of Christ, Jesus has given us a new name, an everlasting joy. Tonight, as we approach the table, let us come to have fellowship with Jesus, the Father to the fatherless, the protector of widows. We come weak and needy to be strengthened and to be equipped for the work of mercy as a testimony to the world that God has not abandoned us in our distress, but invites us to come, to eat, drink, and to be satisfied with a feast of God's salvation. Let us pray.